Would you please take your Bibles and open it to John chapter 14? John chapter 14. Read the first six verses. John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Father, these familiar words to our ears are ones that we need to hear this morning. For you've ordained it for this very purpose at this very time. And Lord, I pray that you would use that for your glory to work in us the truth. So would you give us ears to hear and a heart to receive that your word would accomplish its purpose right now. We can do nothing apart from you, so we ask for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. The concept of faith is, is something that I think everyone can get on board with, whether you're in the church or outside of the church. The idea of faith is something that's reassuring to most ears. But what makes faith trustworthy, reliable? What makes faith trustworthy? An investigative documentary did a piece on Benny Hinn Ministries in 2020 and recalled an eight-year-old girl from British Columbia who attended the crusade in Calgary, and she was hoping to be healed. This precious little eight-year-old girl, she explained, she was born with a, a curvature in the joints, and so she was unable to walk from birth. In the video, they have recording her when she was that age. In the video, her parents are asking her, what, what do you want most? What do you want most? And the little girl says, just to walk. Just to walk. And so her and her family went to a Benny Hinn crusade hoping to walk. During the crusade, her mother carried her to the stage, but as they were going to the stage to be healed by Benny Hinn, they were stopped by screeners. And these screeners are there to keep the truly sick and disabled away from Benny Hinn. This girl now, in her 20s, in the documentary, she explains she never got her miracle. She was never healed. I don't think we would ever tell an eight-year-old girl that faith, this faith that she professed to have, is bad. Faith isn't bad, but again, what makes faith trustworthy? It's the substance of that faith. It's the material. What are you having faith in? That faith, that regardless of one's expectations, the substance remains trustworthy and true. So no matter what the outcome is, true faith, having true substance, can have abiding faith. Because of its substance, not because of one's expectations, not because of one's supposed outcomes. But what makes faith trustworthy is that substance of that faith. So therefore, in Christ, whether you're troubled or overcome with anxiety, there's indication there that whenever we are overcome, whenever we are troubled, there is indication that there is something wrong with our faith, with our belief, not the substance You may not show up at a Benny Hinn crusade, but what do you do when the stability of your life gets rocked? Or the control that you had is no longer in your hands? What do you do when your heart is troubled? You see, a a troubled heart reveals a weak or sometimes misdirected faith. Now, it's easy to point out one's weakness in faith. I think we can easily do that. If ever you're suffering or troubled, it's easy for someone to point at you and say you have weak faith. That's not what I tend to do. Because hear me, I think we all need to realize how weak and how fragile our faith is in Christ. 
Does a believer in Christ realize and acknowledge how weak and how fragile your belief can be sometimes? Now, belief is not designed to merely carry you into the kingdom of heaven. All right, hear that. That our belief in Christ is not merely just designed to carry you into the kingdom of heaven, but faith, belief, is also designed to carry you now. It's designed to carry you now. That we need to walk in belief, to walk in faith. And we see that in this passage. Because in verse 1, Jesus begins with an imperative as he talks to his disciples. He begins with a command in verse 1. He says, do not what? Let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled, he says. This is the command he gives to them. Now, obviously, if Jesus was saying that, why would he be saying that? Because their hearts were troubled. Because they were troubled. What were they troubled by? Now, we're coming here in the middle of chapter, or not the middle, but in the middle of this, this, this uh, book, chapter 14. But the beginning here, it comes in the middle of a discourse that they're having. Now, this is the upper room discourse. The, the, the last meeting Christ had with his disciples includes the Last Supper. This is the last kind of team meeting he was having with his disciples. And already so many things were discussed in this upper room discourse that led up to this point. And what was discussed obviously resulted in the disciples having a troubled heart. You can look at all the, what was discussed in other, the other gospels, but the disciples were completely bewildered at this point. They were discouraged. By this point in chapter 14, he'd already said that he was going away, that he was leaving. He already said that he would die. He already mentioned, if you recall, that one of the 12 was a traitor. He even said that Peter himself would would disown him three times. Jesus also said that Satan would, would work against all of them and that all the disciples would eventually fall away not speaking of faith, but fall away. All of these things that Jesus already discussed with him beyond up to this point, all of these truths, hearing that he's going to leave, someone's a traitor, you're going to get attacked, you're going to fall away. (laughs) What an encouraging talk, right? What kind of pep talk is that? It's like, come on, coach. (laughs) Now go back there in halftime, right? No, this is is hard truths for them. And so they were troubled. They were bewildered. They were discouraged. So while there are reasons, there were legitimate reasons for them to be troubled. But hear me, there are greater reasons for their hearts not to be troubled. So there are legitimate reasons for them to be troubled, but greater reasons for them not to be troubled. And what's interesting is uh, Jesus here is commanding them not to be troubled. But we see here, and even the, the Gospel of John itself, we see that Jesus himself was troubled, it says. If you recall from John chapter 11, even when Jesus was at the, 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 the tomb of Lazarus, he was troubled himself. That he was overcome with grief. That he himself experienced trouble, the Lord. So let's ask, why is he commanding them not to do something that he himself experienced? He's commanding them not to be troubled. So why would he command that if he himself was troubled at times? There are two things I think we need to realize. One is his trouble is never a result of weakness of faith. Then when Christ is troubled, it's never because he is weak in faith. But his trouble is a holy grief. That he rightly grieves. He's troubled at the result and the effects of sin. You think about their grief, their trouble was similar to that story in the boat. In the boat. When they see the waves, and they're troubled, but not for the right reasons. They're troubled because they're worried about themselves. What's going to happen to me? His trouble is never a result of weakness of faith. Secondly, why would he command them not to do something he experienced? Secondly is, he was troubled, as we'll see. He was troubled so that they would not have to be troubled. That Christ was troubled so that his disciples will never have to be troubled that he would ultimately bear the brunt of all of the grief so they would not have to be troubled. All they would have to do is simply look upon him who was troubled for them. But even more, look how he addresses their anxiety at the end of verse 1. He says, do not be troubled, but at the end of verse 1, how does he, how does he respond to this anxiety? How, what does he tell them to do? 
Believe in God. Believe also in me. You catch that. He says, don't be, don't, be, don't be anxious. Don't be troubled. And so what's his antidote for that? Belief. It's to believe. Believe. He addresses their anxiety by commanding them to believe. Not to see a miracle. Remember what I did on the mountain. Remember how I provided all the loaves. Remember the, the transfiguration, how, how a few saw my glory. Although that's true. But how does he command them to address their anxiety? It is to believe. To believe. He says, believe in God and believe also in me. He's also asserting his deity because who else could put on the, on the same grounds, believe in God and believe in me? I mean, that would be blasphemy if he were not God himself. You see here just a perfect expression of the Trinity that he is on par with God the Father. You believe in God, believe in me. Who else could say that but Christ, God himself in flesh? If you came to me for counseling and you poured out your heart and you, you were with full transparency, transparency, told me all the issues going on, and you were just so honest and just poured out everything that was on you, all the grief and all the pain, and you sat across from me and I said, deep breath, I looked, looked you square in the eye and I said, yes, believe. Okay, but then what I do? Believe. Yeah, yeah, but, but after that, what, what happens now? Believe. But you, how would you respond? Like, okay, okay Chris, that's not too deep. <laughs> Can we get more theological? Like, like, that, what, what are you talking about? That's essentially what he's getting at the core of it. When you're in trouble, he says, disciples, I know what you're feeling. The antidote is believe. Believe. Now, it sounds so simple, but something so simple that we don't even grasp it sometimes. Believe. I'm not saying be optimistic, but to believe. Believe here is used over a hundred times in the Gospel of John. Over a hundred times. It's a common theme here to believe, 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 which is more than half the amount of times in the other Gospels. He's trying to get something with here that to believe, that this belief is not just a blind belief, but belief must be informed with what? With truth. Your belief must be informed with what is true. And that truth you can wholeheartedly depend upon. Now in this discourse here, the Lord gives comfort for the troubled heart by describing three realities for the believer. He gives comfort for the troubled heart by describing three realities for the believer. I want you to take note here that in chapter 14, the predominant note of this chapter is comfort. It's comfort. We're not going to cover it this right now, or actually at all recently, but um, we're not going to cover it. But another theme and comfort in later in chapter 14 is comfort through what? The Holy Spirit. So we're going to see a different sort of comfort now. But he says essentially the whole theme in chapter 14 is comfort, comfort, comfort. And one other aspect of comfort is the Holy Spirit, the present abiding power of the Spirit, God the Spirit. But here he's giving comfort, not just for the disciples, but this is comfort. I want you to hear for us today. This is comfort for you. That this type of comfort, it doesn't overlook the reality of pain and anxiety, but rather this comfort informs it. It informs your anxiety and and pain. Sinclair Ferguson, he was commenting on this passage, and he gave a a perfect illustration that I think helps of, of what this comfort is designed to do in the midst of trouble. He explains... How do planes ever get off the ground, right? How does a plane fly? It's not because the plane is lighter than the air or that the law of gravity no longer exists for the plane. But no, it's because the laws of aerodynamics are brought into operation that lift and thrust overcome weight and drag. So that even though the plane is still just as heavy, how can it fly higher than a light paper in the wind? It's because, no, the laws of aerodynamics are brought into play. And so now that heavy play, heavy plane can fly above and high miles above because of these laws. It's able to endure it no matter how heavy it is. So comfort here, it doesn't ignore the reality, but that comfort here informs it. So no matter how heavy and how much drag, how much weight, it can still fly and soar. And that's what he's designed to do. 
that though we are weighed down with trials and difficulties, perplexities and deep sorrows, being a Christian doesn't immune you from these things. You're not stopped from these things. But, but, but hear this, that there's another law at work for you. There's another law at work that we have, over, we have resources to overcome them in Christ. So as you remain, just like the disciples, separated, eventually separated physically from your Savior, instead of allowing your soul to be overcome with trouble and anxiety, believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. Though you too are separated physically from the Lord, believe in Christ. That's what he's commanding you. Believe. And yet he informs that belief with three realities. Three, three realities that I think we need to cling to. The first reality is the believer's home. The believer's home. A comforting truth that he leaves for them is that this world is not their home. That they're not at home. The disciples are not at home. Scripture des- describes the Christian as being what? A sojourner, right? An alien in a foreign land. Because you should never get too comfortable here. That this world is not your home. You should not be so comfortable here that you want to stay here forever, right? Hope none of us do. I sure don't. That this is not our home. You know whenever you're staying at someone's house, no matter how hospitable they are, I mean, I've stayed in some wonderful homes, wonderful people. I've done tours and we went all around California and stayed at so many hospitable people's homes. It was wonderful. But you know what? I could not wait to get home. I mean, I don't care how warm and welcoming they were, and just how much food they gave us. They gave us plenty of food. They did so much to make me feel welcome. They went out of their way. I am so grateful. But let me tell you, I could not wait till I got home. That's the kind of anticipation that you should have for your home. That you realize here that this doesn't do it. I am longing for home. It's like a sigh of relief. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He urges them as what? As aliens, as strangers. And what these disciples must realize is that, this, that his home, the Lord's home, is now their home, which is what he says in verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. It's a familiar verse, one that we know well. I'm sure you've hear, heard it many times, funerals and whatnot. It is a familiar w- verse. And depending upon your translation or how you learned it growing up, like I remember hearing it, in my father's house are many mansions, right? Or if you have the ESV, it says many rooms. Different understandings of this. But the only other place that this specific word for for dwelling place is used is in the same chapter, but in verse 23. Why don't you take a look at that? Jesus said, verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's some juicy meat there in that verse. He says, if anyone loves me, Right? Essentially, the Father and I will come and make our abode with him. That's the only other place that this, time this, that this word is used. And I think that helps describe what the meaning here of, of really what are these dwelling places. Is he saying here, I have many mansions, so I'm just waiting my mansion in heaven, right? Especially in California. I'm waiting my mansion. I have a townhouse now, right? But, but no, what, what, what is he saying here? Is he, is he talking about the architecture of the place? No, I think he's going beyond that. He's saying, in my father's house, as the Nazbi puts it, there's many dwelling places, there are many abodes. And the emphasis here is the idea of God dwelling with man and man dwelling with God. That, that is the emphasis he's getting here. The picture is rather, as one person put it, the picture is, is rather of a father building additional rooms into his house for his sons and their families to live in. That was often done in Israel, where the father would build on additional houses, additional rooms, so that his his sons and their families can live in it. It's it's a a large house, but he would make additional rooms for his family. And the concept is, is that you're still dwelling with one another. That Christ is not speaking with regard to, like I said, the architecture of the home, so much as the unity of the home. And what's that unity? Is that God is with man. 
The emphasis is on our dwelling with God. And that common motif of God dwelling with man is one familiar to Scripture. Of God dwelling with the Israelites in the wilderness. God dwelling with his people through the temple. God dwelling with his people when Christ became flesh. To all the way to to end, we read in Revelation, when God will dwell with man. This emphasis of God dwelling with people is a constant theme and motif throughout Scripture of God dwelling with a redeemed man, his man. And this is a picture when broken Eden will be restored perfectly when Christ comes but there's still the idea that he is preparing a place for them in the Father's home. That's why he says at the end of verse 2 that I'm going to prepare a place for you. That this is the idea of a specific place he has you in mind. That I have a dwelling place for you where you will dwell with God. And so the reality of their hope here is that the home there, the, 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 the fullness of the home is you with God and God with you. And this, this hope for the believer's home, is one that informed the Apostle Paul. What you think about, when you think of Paul's life, you think of all the hardships he went through. And in fact, go in your Bible to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to see this here, of how this hope of heaven, this specific hope of a home, of a heavenly home, informed the Apostle Paul's life in the same way that it should inform yours. First is 2 Corinthians 5. Look what he says there in verse 1. For we know that the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. Speaking of our, our physical body, right? We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And he explains in verse 2. For indeed in this house we groaned, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Now go forward a couple chapters to chapter 11. Now, this is when Paul is speaking of his own hardships. Chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 30, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. As you can see, dangers, right? I've been in labor and hardship. Through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. You see, his life was not an easy life. That even you think of the disciples, uh, we can go through it, but most of them suffered horrendous death through martyrdom, except for John. That they were killed with a sword, beheaded. They, they, were, they endured hardship, hard lives. But what is it that kept them going? What was the gas in the tank? Now, follow Paul's train of thought. Go now to the next chapter, in chapter 12. He says, boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He he speaks of his own encounter, that I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. He's talking about himself. Verse 3, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out part of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which man is not permitted to speak. Who is this man? Paul. That right after talking about all the hardships he went through, what kept Paul motivated and kept on the track to living a life of faithfulness, trusting and believing in the God who saved him? His home. That Paul knew this was not it. That's why Paul, at the end of 2 Timothy, he can say, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. And now waiting for me is a crown of righteousness that the Lord himself will award to me on that day. What was on Paul's mind? It was his home. It was his home. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, speaking of Abraham, says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, in a foreign land dwelling in tents, 
with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking for what? The city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham endured in a foreign land, waiting for that land that was not built by man. Faith, faith is motivated by home. That I realize this is not it. Is your heavenly home real to you? I know you know this. I know we know heaven. I know if I were, were to die in Christ, we go immediately to be in the presence of the God and the Lord. That's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, do you believe and are you hoping in right now for the hope of heaven? Is that your hope? That if you were to die, you will be in the presence of God so that no matter what hardship you face, no matter how much trouble comes your way, this home is not my home. I will actively reflect and meditate on the fact that in my father's house are many dwelling places and he has a place for me, for you. That should be your motivation. So no matter what comes your way tomorrow, today, Your joy is not rocked. Your trouble is not overwhelmed because this is not your home. I'm going home soon. I'm checking out soon. I got a checkout date. So while we long for it, we also prepare for it. You prepare for it. That there's heart anticipation for it. Not a fake smile. Not this fake Christianese happiness. There's an abiding in the heart joy that you can weather storms because you realize no matter how hard it is, I have an abiding hope. So how are you preparing for home? Think about it. You know, if you, if you go on a vacation, especially if you've got type A personalities, if you go on a vacation, you don't just wake up in the morning and just fly out. What are you doing before vacation? I'm, I'm looking at reviews. I'm going to go on Yelp and TripAdvisor. I'm going to maybe call a couple of people who've been there. I'm going to do my research. I'm not just going there just to go there. I'm going to prepare for that. How are you preparing for home? How do you prepare for your true home, for his kingdom? Obviously, it involves the obvious things, living in obedience to its king, to its master of the home. And we'll see next week as we also abide in him. In chapter 15, it says in John, we're going to love one another. These are obvious things. We're going to endure persecution. We don't get comfortable with this temporary abode. That we're going to pray according to the will of the master of the home. But I think it also implies that I'm never going to be too tied with the things of this temporary home. That they were never designed to satisfy you. That things of this earth are never designed to satisfy you. How often are we discontent with just the mundane things of life? If I can just get this one thing done, then I'll kind of be at peace here. If I can just do this one more thing, then I can kind of... We're so just, just, just distracted with just things that don't matter. You ever watch a, like a football game or any sports event, right? And you know, if, if, you're, if you're rooting for one team, like if you're hardcore rooting for a team, you just imagine during, as you're watching the game, like if, if, if the other team scores a point, like, oh, you throw a chair, kick the dog, right? You're just like, like, man, oh, and then you score, yes, and then, like, and then something else happens, no, foul, come on, refs, like you're, you're so ingrained in it and so moved by every call of the game. But if your team wins, do you even remember how upset you got in the first quarter? No. Do you remember the bad call that was called? No. Do you care about the the points they scored? No. Because why? We won. (laughs) Right? We won. It's perspective. It's the perspective that I realize at the end of the day, we win. So why I, I can lose anything now. I can lose in the first and second quarter, but guess what? In the fourth quarter, it's gonna come out and we're gonna take over, and I'm gonna grab that trophy. That's the perspective, the eternal perspective prepares you for home. To realize that if that is true, what does that mean about my hopes now? What does that mean about my desires now, about my priorities now, about your list now, about everything you're wanting to do? Is it informed by eternity? What is the eternal measurement, the eternal outcome of everything you're investing your life and your sweat into? At the end of the day, are you going to be so proud that you were number one in your company? 
Or are you going to be so proud that you are faithful to shepherd your children and spend time with them, to pull away, even to pull away hours from work so that you can invest in your family? Is that the eternal investment you're investing in? Are you going to realize as mothers that this is a good calling that I have, that I'm preparing for home by evangelizing, discipling the precious souls the Lord has placed around me 24-7? This is a high calling, and I will do it with joy. The believer's home is a real reality. So he comforts his disciples to be eternally minded. Second reality, he speaks of the believer's anticipation. The believer's anticipation. That the believer eagerly anticipates for this thing. And what is that? The return of the Lord. The believer eagerly anticipates the return of the Lord. Now, because hear me. The home itself, right, when we read about all of it in Revelation, the home itself, man, it's great. But what makes the home home is who is there, and that's Christ. God is there. Yeah, if you remember the old song, I remember when I was growing up, there's an old song. It says, I'm not, I'm not thinking about those sights. No, I won't be there to enjoy the view. But as long as you're there, that's the heart of it. That what makes home home is God is there. So we don't want to just long for paradise, right? I don't want to just long for just just a perfect body for the sake of having a perfect body without any health, without any complications, without any worries. No, 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 that's all nice. That's all good. But who is there? It's Christ. The believer's anticipation is Christ. That we know the sights are there, the wonders are there, the views will be amazing, but it all reflects the wonder and beauty of its creator. That Christ encourages the apostles of this in verse 3. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself. That he can prepare a place, but if he's not coming, (laughs) what good is it? How are you going to get there? He's coming to, 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 to receive you for himself. He's coming for his bride. And Christ, as he is emphasizing, or as he's speaking of his return, he is emphasizing his return, not just on judgment, but his return upon the redemption of his body, of his church. That's why he says at the end of verse 3, that if I go, excuse me, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also that the emphasis is on redeeming and receiving the redeemed into himself. That we wait eagerly for the Lord's return. That that is our hope. That he is coming again. That he will come, as he said. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul describes the imminent return of the Lord. And he describes it in in the midst of, also, the, Thess- the Thessalonians, their anxiety, they're hearing different doctrines, different teachings about the Lord's return. But Paul here, he's speaking to that concern, that desire in chapter 4, verse Thessalonians. He says in verse 13, another one we know well, but, but we do not know, excuse me, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as those, as the rest who do not have no hope. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That we know he's coming. He's coming back. He's coming back at any point in time. But he's coming here to comfort his disciples of realizing here, I'm coming for you. Because after that passage, he says in 1 Thessalonians, he says in verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The purpose of this truth is to comfort one another with these words. He is coming again, and he's coming for you, beloved. He's coming for his own. That the truth of not only his home, but of his return should bring encouragement and comfort. That his his return involves receiving you unto himself in a special way. That his return has you in mind. 
He says, I'm coming to receive you unto myself. And what precious words that he has in mind, every single one of his saints that he poured out his blood into the point of death for, he has you in mind. I died for you, and guess what? I'm coming back for you. That's why we can say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. The believer eagerly anticipates his coming. For him to bring to fruition all that he has promised. And these are true promises that the believer can cling to. That he is coming. Believer, don't let a day go by where you do not ponder and pray for the Lord's return. You hear me? Don't let a day go by where you do not ponder and pray for the Lord's return. You think about whatever you pray for really is the bedrock of really what's going on in your soul. You know, the things that we commit to prayer anxiously and urgently, those things that we pray for are heavy upon our hearts. May it be upon your heart, believer, to pray for his return. That you would, you would cover your heart, fill your heart with the truth that he is coming again. May that be your anticipation. To pray daily, to look up at the clouds daily, Maranatha. Maranatha, Maranatha, don't let a day go by where you do not ponder and pray for his return. He affirms that they know the way, even though we'll see soon how they express their ignorance. But he he says, he says, you know the way where I'm going. He's revealed to them many times, as you can read through the Gospels, many times, I'm going to the Father. I'm from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. He said it many times. They know the way. They believe in him. Their faith is weak, but they believe in him. So they do know the way. But we'll see soon is that they're expressing just signs of weak faith. This is essentially Thomas's question in verse 5. He says, Lord, we, we do not where you know where you're going. How do we know the way? Thomas is always the one to speak his mind. If you remember from John chapter 11, when they're going back to Lazarus' tomb, Thomas was the one who said, oh, great, let's go with the Lord to die. <laughs> Like, his cup was always half, half empty. Like, okay, we're going to go, but we're going to die. Like, he didn't understand then. He still doesn't understand now. That's Thomas, doubting Thomas, right? But they knew the way, which leads us to a third reality, the believer's way. The believer's home, the believer's anticipation. This third reality, the believer's way. And here the anticipation rises. Because you know, if Scripture is true, with all that God says he's prepared for those who love him, then the question is, okay, how do we get there? Okay, amen. This is great. How do we get there? What is the way? What is that way? Maybe the better question, who is the way? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Period. It's no, there's no complication here. There's no confusion here. How do I get to this eternal home? One way. It's Jesus. It's through him. Believe in me also. Believe in Jesus. He is the way. That's period. Point blank. It's not, it, it's, not, it's not confusing. It's not complicated. It's not simplistic, but it's simple. He is the way. And that's exactly what he says, is that he is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That that is what he says, that he is the way. The context, obviously, it indicates that the idea of the way predominates the, the truth and the life. In other words, we can say, I am the way because I am the truth and the life. Like, because he is truth, because he is life, of course, I am the way to truth and to life. The way in the Jewish, in the Jewish mind here that, that God's people, even in the Old Testament, they knew that the way of God was, was found through the Torah, his law. That they wanted to live a blessed life, they were to follow what? His law. Right? You think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed, essentially, blessed is the man who walks in the way. The Jewish mind understood that the way to blessing, to life, was to follow the right path of the Torah. Here, Jesus himself is saying, is that I am the way. In other words, I am the Torah come flesh. I, I am the way. That if you want to know how to have a blessed life, that I am the word made flesh, as John chapter 1 says. That I am the Torah. I am the way. I am the life and the truth. I'm the true Torah. I am the true word. I am the true way, he's saying. And in fact, it's because this understanding that the, the Christians taught that Christ is the only way. You see in the book of Acts that Christians were referred to as, as what? As 
followers of the way, right? They, they're following the one way to life, and that is through Christ, the one they profess. So Jesus here, speaking to his disciples, he's saying here, no, no, I am the way to that blessed life. If you want an enriched life, if you want life eternal, if you want all that God has had for those who love him, come to me, and I will give it to you freely and abundantly. By the way, that's a good message, that there is no work you bring to the table. There's nothing you do but simply fall at your knees and come to the one who is God in the flesh. It's Jesus. You come to him, and that's it. It's not it. I mean, that's not it. That's it. There's, there's no sinner's prayer. There's no, you just pray fervently. Pray with the open heart. Come to Christ and pray. Give to him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Just come to Christ. I mean, that's, that's a simple message of the gospel. Come to Christ. If that is true of God is and who man is, then you're in trouble. But guess what? The only hope is the way he is prescribed. Christ. Come to Christ. Period. So not only is he the way, he's the truth. So just as the way is the living way, so also truth is the living truth. It's active. It takes hold of us. It influences us powerfully. This is truth that sanctifies us, that truth that guides us, truth that sets us free, Jesus himself says, that, that the truth will set you free. You think of when Pilate asked, you know, what is truth? What is truth? What, what is it? Where can I go? We can answer that by looking at Jesus. He's truth. He's truth. He didn't just know truth, but no, 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 I am truth. That I am truth. He's a life. He's a life because he has life within himself. That he's a source and then the giver of life of his own. That he has the light of life, as we saw in the past, past months. That he's the light of the world. That he gives life. Not only that, but he holds the word of life. And he came that we might have life and life abundantly. So Peter, when he says the Lord, he says, Lord, where else, we, where else shall we go? Lord, you have the words of life. Where can I find that? It's in Christ. Where can I find the way, the truth? Where can I find life? It's in Christ. And because this is true of him, he affirms that the only way to the Father is how? It's through him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and life. We, we've spoken of this multiple times, but the I am pointing to his deity. It's pointing back to Moses on, on Mount Sinai, that I am, I'm Yahweh in flesh. He is affirming who he is, that he is not just a prophet, not just a good man. He's saying, no, no, I am God, and I am the way, the truth, and life. He's the only one who can claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. Because if you think about it, mere, a, a, a mere good prophet cannot make that claim. A good prophet cannot make the claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. That's a bad prophet, right? A, 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 a good prophet is a good prophet who points you to the way, the truth, and life, right? That's what a good prophet does. I don't have that in myself, but let me show you where you can get it. You go to the way, right? But he's not just a good prophet. He is the one who's making the claim because he is the true prophet, he is truly God. So therefore, if you want the way, you want truth, you want life, you come to me. That there is no one else who can make that claim. That Christianity is not just a closed-minded religion, but this is the way that Christ has prescribed himself. This is his own words. That if you want life, you go to Christ. So we're not just a presumptuous people who, who just needlessly constrict the path of salvation, but no, this is what God has prescribed. And I would argue, in fact, it's more presumptuous for anyone to believe that they can come to the Father apart from the way he's prescribed. Think how bold that is, right? Imagine going to England or going to a foreign country that doesn't accept for U.S. dollars. You try to pay for anything with, with, with fake money, with foreign money. No, you, you got to go and prescribe a certain way. Right? You, you'd be presumptuous to think that, no, no, you should give me the same value for my money that your money has, Right? It's, it's presumptuous to think that they could go any other way to God the Father apart from his own son. But that is the good news he's saying here, is that you can come to me because I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So you come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Believe that he is who he said he is. He is the I am, that he is God. 
So these three, three realities carry the believer with abiding hope. That the believer's home, the believer's anticipation, the believer's way. All these are designed to comfort the, the apostles on their impending tribulation. <clears throat> that they were, no doubt, facing a lot of hardships in their future. Whether they knew of it or not, they had a lot of obstacles in front of them. And after hearing all the truth that Christ said to them, Christ addressed that trouble with the truth of who he is. And not only that, but the hope that comes with that that you have a home, that I'm coming for you, and the only way is through me. There was a a survey done by Probe in 2020, and it revealed that nearly 70% of born-again Christians disagree with the position that Jesus is the only way. And that 70% is higher than the Pew research done in 2008 that showed half believed at that time that Jesus was the only way. So now it's... 20% higher. The vast majority of professing born-again Christians disagree that Christ is the only way. One observation in the article revealed that the need of more churches to preach on the exclusivity of Christ. And amen and amen, I agree. That we do need more sound churches that are preaching the the exclusivity of Christ. That in other words, there's only one way to Christ, I mean to heaven, and that is through Christ. There's one way to the Father. That is through Christ. We need more churches to be bold to preaching the truth. That if you want to be saved, you go to the Father through Jesus the Son. We need that. But also by implication, the exclusivity of Christ in salvation also means, here believer, the exclusivity of Christ in your sanctification. That Christ is the only way to save you, but Christ is your primary means to your sanctification. That if you believe that Christ is the only way to the Father, do you also believe that he's the only source for your ongoing truth day by day? Is he your only way of blessing? See, we're not excused from this this debate just just because we have a theological understanding of it. Yes, we understand Christ is the only way. But hear me now. Do we also understand and cling to that truth that he is the only way for me to have joy and abiding joy and truth now? Am I running to him for my truth, to be renewed in his mind? Do I believe, if I believe he is the only truth, then where is my mind getting renewed in? If I believe that he is the only life, how much is my hope staked in that life? If he is the one that gives life, how has that life changed your daily life? Because remember, Christ is speaking to his disciples before his departure. And the rest of their lives are ahead of them. The rest of their difficult, persecute-filled lives. But he gives them an eschatological hope in this. Their hope for them to realize is that this life is not it. He doesn't give this to them not only to boost their theology, but so that the theology would take wings for them. That they would not only understand this to be true, but they would have a present impact upon them as they're in, in battling daily trials, daily struggles. As they would suffer martyrdom in many different ways, he's giving them hope to know that this is theologically true, but it's also practically true as you endure hardship. And that's what it should have upon you, believer, as you walk through you, you walk through your life, that as you walk through life, you can walk through life differently because you realize who is the one who holds the keys of life and death, who is the one who has true truth, who is true truth, and who is the one who will bring you safely to his kingdom, that you can walk through life differently, not just because you know of the only way, but because you're walking in that only way. So don't just know it to be true, but live in it. Let this life prepare you for the one to come. May it draw us ever near to the one who gives life and truth. Have that eternal mindset. So when something is lost to you here, when you lose something, your health, your friends, your loved one, your possessions, when something is tested for you here, let that draw your heart upward for home. When you do lose what is precious to you, when it seems like your your comfortable home here is getting rocked, let that draw your gaze upward. Where is your hope? This is when this doctrine takes wings. This is when the plane flies. Not just because you know a plane can fly, not just because you know it has wings, but you are living in that truth, that you have a home, that he is coming for you, and that he is the only source for not only eternal life, but for your abiding life now. Let this have its wings now. 
I'm glad we know this to be theologically true. And we should preach this till we turn blue. But we should also preach to not only know this truth, but to cling to this truth. Because we can easily fall into the comfortability of, of just sound orthodoxy while neglecting the truth of the Savior from whose mouth it comes. That we can, too, be like the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, where you know all these things, but you've left and lost your first love. So how does the anticipation for home and his return stir up your affections? Does it? <clears throat> does it stir up your affections? This is not a guilt trip. It's a heart check that we all need to do. Because let's assume that we're no better in our faith than the apostles, that our faith too is weak and fragile. You too are prone to be troubled. You too are prone to question. You too are prone to wonder about the future, to face troubles. But the same promises that Christ gave to his disciples to provide them with comfort abound to you today. In the beginning of this upper room discourse, he's comforting his, his disciples with eschatological hope. That's a hope that we can cling to. Obviously, there's other hope, right? We have the hope, the present hope of the Holy Spirit. We have the hope that you have a present comforter of God, very God, living inside of you. That is a good hope. But he starts it off here with an eschatological hope, a future hope. Look here. Look here. And that's where you need to be looking. That's what should stir your affections. That's what should give you peace in the midst of a troubled heart. If you know who Christ is and what he's promised, Believe also in the hope he has granted to you. Turn your eyes upward. So since you believe in him, beloved, believe in all that he has promised you. Trust in all that he has promised in you. Take delight in all that he has for you. Because he wrote this so that you can have peace. And he says later in this, in this discourse that, that my peace I leave with you. My peace I leave with you. That you can have peace. And that's what he wants for you. <clears throat> Would you pray? Lord, this is a truth that I think it is one that we know very well. But Lord, let's be honest that we don't believe it often. That, Lord, our hearts are led astray. God, our hearts are seeking comfort and peace in just the temporary, tangible things. And God, we confess that. We confess that we're no better than the the disciples, that we are weak, that we question you, that we doubt you, that we wonder what you're doing. That, Lord, we don't understand, but, Lord, I pray that you would renew our minds in the truth. That we would not just believe that you are the way, but we would walk in the way and trust in you as the way. That you are our truth and our life. So, Lord, work that truth into our hearts right now, I pray, for your name's sake. That we would long for heaven because you are there. So, would you perfect us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.